I will keep fighting to bring peace to humans and robots. This is part eight of Mega Buster, our very, very long interrogation of the Mega Man franchise. I'm Stefan. This time around, Mega Man 2, that's the Roman numeral 2, released in Japan as Rockman World 2 in December 1991, and in the United States in February 1992 for the Nintendo Game Boy. Capcom of the 1990s operated according to a simple ethos. It's not possible to have too much of a good thing. Long before the world began to question whether the Osaka-based studio was capable of counting to three, Capcom showed a remarkable knack for and tolerance of repetition. This was in sharp contrast to the efforts of their contemporaries at Nintendo, Konami, and Squaresoft, who were working to take risks and deliver new and innovative versions of established properties. While each previous Mega Man game we have examined introduced some variation upon its formula in an attempt to provide an exciting new selling point for the back of its box, Mega Man 2 for Game Boy is notable as perhaps the franchise's first pure, unabashed retread. There are no new tricks in Mega Man 2, or Rockman World 2 as it is helpfully known in Japan. Rather, it's simply a warmed-over follow-up to its predecessor, Dr. Wily's Revenge. Mega Man 2 was released in Japan five and a half months after its portable predecessor, and only two weeks after Mega Man 4 hit the Japanese Famicom, which was itself only two weeks after The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past hit the Japanese Super Famicom. Capcom wasn't just cranking out 8-bit Mega Man games at a blinding pace. It was doing so as other studios were releasing landmark titles on newer, more powerful hardware. Given that this was the third, the third title in the series released during a six-month span, it's not surprising that Mega Man 2 was produced by a subcontractor whereas its predecessor had been handled quite capably by Minakuchi Engineering. Mega Man 2 was a product of the creatively named Japan System House, also known as Biox. I am unable to find material information about the founding, operation, or eventual closure of Biox through typical online sources. Anyone who knows anything about the company is welcome to reach out, if such a person exists and is listening to this podcast, and is the talkative type. As best I can tell, Biox operated as a studio for hire, specializing, if it can be said to specialize in anything, in down conversions of popular titles or licenses to 8-bit handheld hardware. It appears to have had some champions at Sega during the 1990s, and is credited with the Game Gear releases of Rice Star... Streets of Rage, Streets of Rage 2, and Tails Sky Patrol. Its only other release on Nintendo hardware that I've been able to identify is the obscure 2001 Japan-only Game Boy Color puzzle platformer Samurai Kid, which actually received a somewhat favorable write-up 
by Stephen Barbado at Hardcore Gaming 101 as recently as 2021. What did not receive a favorable write-up from Hardcore Gaming 101 or many other outlets was Mega Man 2 for Game Boy. Mega Man 2 adopts the same basic concept and structure as its predecessor, cribbing robot masters and level elements from its NES counterparts and blending until not quite smooth. Biox was reportedly not familiar with the Mega Man series prior to being handed the reins of this admittedly low-budget, low-risk project, and the generally subpar quality of this release resulted in Capcom returning control of the Rockman World series to Minakuchi Engineering, who, while not delivering particularly inspiring output yet, did at least more successfully capture the unique feel of Mega Man in a portable environment. Even so, Biox was working from a sturdy template, and while Mega Man 2 doesn't do anything particularly interesting with the property or deliver a memorable gameplay experience, it remains far superior to the dreck that would clutter the gameplay's library in coming years. Mega Man 2 is modestly ambitious in one respect, though. Its story. I've avoided belaboring the narrative of the Mega Man games to date, as the series' NES entries operate most effectively when focused on evocative visual storytelling. Later games would place an increasingly strong emphasis on their narratives, weaving a complex, if only occasionally compelling, tapestry atop what had begun as a simple tale of a household robot being conscripted into a never-ending machine war with the future of humanity at stake. Mega Man 2 points the way towards that meandering, convoluted future by raising two questions that we all have to grapple with at some point in our modern transmedia age. What constitutes a canonical entry into a fictional franchise? And should supplemental material released alongside those entries be considered in the evaluation of the core work? I personally know several people who are far more qualified to answer these questions than I am. Nevertheless, I'm the one who's here, so here we go. The concept of canonicity in popular culture presupposes an overarching narrative binding together multiple installments within a single intellectual property. It attempts to contextualize any one installment or series of events within the broader scope of a series, by asking and answering the question, does this one count? Another way of saying that is that canonicity is an IP owner's way of exercising a bit of forward thinking or retroactive creative control as a means of categorizing certain events as mattering or not mattering. This is canon, so respect it versus this is not canon, so don't worry about it. Debates about canonicity in comic books in particular have raged for decades, and major comics publishers have even been so bold as to wipe the slate clean multiple times via universe-shattering resets, or establishing a parallel universe or universes apart from the real universe so as to grant themselves the freedom to explore alternative, non-canonical concepts. This is all, of course, tremendously silly. 
but also tremendously necessary if a creator is going to exercise a measure of control over their increasingly valuable intellectual property. And Mega Man, for whatever it's worth, does have a canon. It's just not one that's particularly coherent when viewed as a whole. We've already seen one game in the series that is definitively non-canonical, that being Steven Rosner's Mega Man for DOS, but that had the excuse of not really being a Capcom production. Mega Man 2, though, bore the Capcom seal of approval, yet introduced concepts that were fundamentally at odds with the broader Mega Man franchise. Specifically, Mega Man 2 is a time travel story. Dr. Wily, Mega Man's eternal nemesis, travels 37 years in the future, that's 20XX plus 37 for those of you keeping track at home, to find a world at peace and his future self largely reformed. Unable to abide this turn of events, he abducts a now peaceful future Mega Man and reprograms him as Quint a fighting robot hell-bent on defeating the actual Mega Man back in the year 20XX. Now, this is very stupid, even when viewed as a self-contained piece of fiction, and it seems to conflict with several future installments in the series, including Mega Man 10, Rockman and Forte Mirai Kara no Chosencha, and the entire Mega Man X, Mega Man Zero, and Mega Man ZX subseries. But on the other hand, who cares? It's just a silly Game Boy game. You should really just relax. Except even that's stretching this a bit, because everything that I just described comes to us not from the game Mega Man 2, but rather from the back of the box and the manual included with every factory-sealed copy of Mega Man 2. Which raises an interesting question. Where does the game itself actually begin and end? If I acquire a copy of Mega Man 2 secondhand, or God forbid if I download a ROM from the internet, can it be said that I am actually playing Mega Man 2? Since I would be missing out on basically the entire story? I don't think this is an insignificant question. Because when Mega Man 2 was released, the storytelling ambitions of video games as a medium were heavily constrained by the technology that developers had available to them. Games could be rich in narrative like Hideo Kojima's Snatcher, or they could focus on player-directed action and tell their stories impressionistically, as was the case with Eric Chahi's 1991 opus Another World, also known as Out of This World. Or games could attempt to combine the two under rigid constraint, as Squaresoft was attempting with its 1991 release of Final Fantasy IV, a groundbreaking game that was frankly light years ahead of what most every other console developer had yet achieved narratively. But if none of those options were within the developer's reach, story would be relegated to an opening text crawl, as in The Legend of Zelda, or pushed entirely to the manual, as in Super Mario Bros. Now, a story is not a game, nor is it a prerequisite for a game. A game is a game, and a game without a story is not any less a game. 
A game purporting to be about a story can be a game if the story hangs on a sturdy frame of play. In the absence of that mechanical framework, a story without a game isn't a game. It's a movie. Now, it's not that story in a game doesn't matter. It's that story and game can be decoupled from one another in such a clean and pristine way, yet reinforce one another in such a substantive and meaningful way, that the relationship between the two could be the subject of an entire library's worth of graduate-level dissertations. It's a dynamic entirely unique to games as a medium, and one that we will return to again and again and again as we continue diving deeper and deeper into the world of Mega Man. Mega Man 2's story is nonsense. And in some senses, it isn't even Mega Man 2's story. It's the story of the greater Mega Man 2 meta-narrative project. But it's also arguably non-canonical to the Mega Man franchise. The events of this game reference those in prior entries, but are themselves referenced only two times in later entries, by Mega Man 5 for the Game Boy, and by Rockman and Forte for the Bandai Wonderswan, both of which we'll get to in due time. Now, an absence of citations does not invalidate the existence of a work or render it non-canonical. Contradiction, however, does call canonicity into question. If the story of Mega Man 2 is dependent on the idea of, one, Dr. Wily traveling through time to retrieve a future Mega Man from a peaceful future, two, future Mega Man being reprogrammed into evil Mega Man in the present, three, evil Mega Man being destroyed by present Mega Man in the present, how do we square that with any of the events of Mega Man X? Mega Man Zero, Mega Man ZX, Mega Man Legends, Mega Man Soccer, Mega Man the Power Fighters, and Mega Man the Power Fighters 2 the Power Battle. We don't. And we should not bother. Alan Moore, famed author of graphic novels, was hired by DC Comics in 1985 to write the final Superman story leading into the events of Crisis on Infinite Earths and as a prelude to John Byrne's wholesale reinvention of the character in his seminal miniseries, The Man of Steel. Moore responded by teaming with legendary Superman artist Kurt Swan and delivering Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, a two-part conclusion to the Superman epic. Moore's tale concisely and occasionally controversially wraps up 50 years of storytelling, yet by its very nature is rendered non-canonical. It's not the last Superman story. It's the last story of a particular version of the character in a moment in time as seen by one specific set of creators. The power of the story comes not from fighting against any of this, not from trying to put your stamp on the property and saying, this, this is the one that matters. The power of the story is actually summed up in its opening line. An acknowledgement of both the place of the story in the comics canon and of the artifice of the comics canon itself. This is an imaginary story. Aren't they all? I won't go so far as to say that story doesn't matter in games. 
I will go so far, however, as to say that it doesn't matter in Mega Man 2. With or without a story, Mega Man 2 is still a game. It's just not a very good one. Thank you for listening to Part 8 of Mega Bluster, our very, very long interrogation of the Mega Man franchise. Music from this episode was sourced from ocremix.org in compliance with that site's content policy. You can find credits and links to the original works in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. If you didn't, recommend it to your enemies as punishment for their sins. If you have any feedback you'd like to provide, or if I missed something, you can reach out to clay at guilelessgamer.com. This and other social links are also in the show notes. How long will I keep on fighting? How long will my pain last? Maybe only the X buster on my hand knows for sure. Thank you.